In one way or another, every episode of the TV room since the election of Donald Trump has been about the election of Donald Trump. And today will be no exception. In episode 5, we talked explicitly about Trump as the ultimate age of television president. In episode 6, we talked about the construct of the electoral college system itself. Not because it has any special meaning for the age of television, but because for a lot of us, most of what we know about how our government works comes from Schoolhouse Rock. And right about now, in the age of television, or maybe it's the post-television age already, with driverless cars and genderless bathrooms, we're bound more than ever to this 18th century way of electing presidents. Twice in the 21st century, the elected president has lost the popular vote, but won the Electoral College. This happened zero times in the 1900s, the so-called American century. But it's happened twice so far in the 2000s, and we're not even out of the 2010s yet. So we went ahead and did a podcast about it, and that was episode six. Episode seven was an introduction to the so-called first information age, a period ushered in by the invention of the telegraph in the 1840s, and Morse code. That's important for our discussion because the television-based media culture that Donald Trump, himself a reality TV character, basically ran against and beat in 2016 could represent the last gasp of this proto-information age that started with the telegraph, developed into modern journalism, and peaked under television. On the next episode of The TV Room, we're going to conclude our discussion about the rise and fall of American journalism, which we're describing as a 20th century phenomenon, and we're going to speculate as to whether Trump's election signals its death knell or the beginning of a heroic second act. But first, we're going to spend this entire episode setting the table for the 20th century in journalism by taking a deeper look back at the most modernizing century this world has ever seen, the 19th century, on this episode of The TV Room. This is the Newmont Television Network. The question really is, which candidate and which party can meet the problems that the United States is going to face in the 60s? The warning that I've received that the brown acid is not specifically too good. Greetings to the people. This is Tanya. And I would never choose to live the rest of my life surrounded by pigs like me. Hello, I'm James Garner. Please drive under 55. If we don't, there may not be enough gas for any of us. Oh, no, not you, kid. Look, I really can't talk to you, okay? This is your brain on drugs. Any questions? What is internet anyway? Allison, can you explain what internet is? Death to the fascist insect that preys upon the life of the people. Most of us would look back at the 20th century as a century of profound change. Living in the world of 1999, by our reckoning, is like living in a completely different universe from the world of 1899. 
Never had there been a century in which so much transformation occurred. And basically, it's true. Automobiles, radios, movies, television, two world wars, the social revolution of the 1960s, and now the internet, mean that being an average Joe in 2000 is to live a life that not even the most imaginative futurists of 1900 could describe. Personally, I was born exactly one century after Laura Ingalls Wilder was, give or take a few months. And to me, her world of ox carts, kerosene lamps, and log cabins registered as a world that had more in common with King Arthur's time, or the Bible, than with my world. But if we're going to be objective about it, we would probably have to say that the greatest single century of change in the recorded era of human history would actually be Half Pint's century, the one between 1800 and 1900. Legend has it that in 1899, the head of the U.S. Patent Office, a guy named Charles Holland Duell, declared that everything that can be invented has already been invented. It was a quote that gained traction and would often be repeated from the 1980s onward. But that quote was recently proven to be an urban myth that can be traced back to a book published in 1981. It's not surprising that this quote would catch on as accepted truth and be so often repeated in the late 20th century, because it did reflect a certain truth of our time, namely that all of the things that made up a 20th century life, trains, planes, automobiles, telephones, light bulbs, movies, television, radio, air conditioning, elevators, all forms of modern machinery, could be traced back to technology invented in the 1800s. If you were around in the 1970s, besides the jet engine and possibly the microwave oven, there weren't a whole lot of brand new inventions to get excited about. And there hadn't been for a generation. Of course, the elephant in that room is the computer. By 1980, computer chip technology was already making its breakthrough. The big craze among school kids the previous year was handheld video games like Coleco Football and Simon. And for the grown-ups, scanners and barcodes were starting to appear in grocery stores, and ATMs were replacing the need to cash checks at the supermarket or wait in line at the bank, and digital watches and handheld calculators were starting to appear on the landscape too. But these were novelties at the time. It was still an analog world more than a digital one, defined by the inventions and breakthroughs of the 19th century, just like the Commissioner of Patents allegedly said back in 1899. By the way, here's what Mr. Duell really had to say on the subject in 1902. In my opinion, all previous advances in the various lines of invention will appear totally insignificant when compared with those which the present century will witness. I almost wish that I might live my life over again to see the wonders which are at the threshold. Duell was an intellectually curious man, living through amazing times, when the breakthroughs of the 1800s were beginning to make their way into the lives of everyday people. By 1910, a grown-up Laura Ingalls Wilder could expect to afford her own Model T and have a garage to park it in. A farmer could have a gas-powered tractor and a worker could have power tools. 
And every year, these machines only got better and cheaper. By the 1920s, a housewife could have a vacuum cleaner and a washing machine. People could go see movies and listen to primetime radio programming, catch a ball game on the radio, and so on. The 20th century meant a life of unfathomable change for everyday people. Every year was another step forward into a world much different than the one their grandparents lived in. The 20th century is when modernity began to trickle down to the masses. What made the story of Laura Ingalls so compelling was that the world she lived in was a world that was already disappearing while she was in it. By the time her story takes place, the frontier was already closing. The transcontinental railroad had already been completed. Midwesterners were moving in droves to a new sunbelt city of planned suburban communities called Los Angeles. The Statue of Liberty was erected in New York to welcome the teeming masses. Thomas Edison's laboratory was churning out paradigm-changing inventions by the dozen. And the United States was well on its way to transforming itself from a rural nation to an urban nation. Most of the decades of the 20th century have their own symbology and iconography that make them instantly recognizable. The 1980s, for instance, would be represented by neon colors, swatches, new wave haircuts, pinstripes. The 70s would be beanbag furniture, earth tones, polyester, wide ties. The 60s would be hippies, peace signs, JFK. The 50s would be Marilyn Monroe, cars with tail fins, and men in gray flannel suits. The 30s would be swing music and the Depression. The 20s would be Flappers, the Charleston, Lucky Lindy, and Prohibition. Now, how about the 1910s and the aughts? You drawing a blank? Well, you're not alone. It's been said that the 1920s were the first decade to be self-referential as a decade, which is to say people talked about the Roaring Twenties as they were happening. The Twenties were the first time that mass media made us all interconnected, not just through the dots and dash on the telegraph, but through the warm, immediate, voice-to-voice -voice intimacy of the radio. People could be aware of and part of popular culture as it happened. And that was a first. In that way, the 1920s is when pop culture began. And every decade since the 20s has been a pop culture decade. But we'd be selling the first 20 years of the 20th century short if we wrote them off as the Dark Ages, just because we don't have that much information about them. In fact, the 19-aughts were very exciting times. A president was assassinated, and a young, boisterous, untried vice president took over and changed the nature of the office itself. All you had to do was stand still and watch the world change around you from year to year and month to month as inventions and innovations like automobiles, trains, and electric light bulbs began to fill up the landscape and go from being curiosities at the World's Fair to everyday objects in your own home or town. In many ways, you can draw parallels between the aughts of the 1900s to the aughts of our own 2000s. Now, I don't think of the 2000s as being a particularly rad decade, like the 60s, the 70s, or even the 80s were. I think of them as kind of boringly stable, culturally speaking, that is. 
Of course, I'm extremely biased in the matter. But even I was awestruck at the pace of change happening in the world around me as I remained in my own uneventful little comfort zone during the 2000s. In the year 2000, the internet was already around. But getting on it, for most people, meant dialing it up on their landlines and using one of those free 60 hours of internet CDs that AOL and CompuServe would send in the mail. An MP3 player was the size of a wallet, cost 200 bucks or more, and could hold about eight songs. But by the next year, that MP3 player was a third of the size, held eight times as much music, and was half the price. Computers didn't really get cheaper per se, but they got a whole lot better, and the internet became much easier to access. Wi-Fi began popping up in a few places here and there, and pretty soon was almost everywhere. And then there were smartphones. In 1999, more people had pagers than cell phones, and most people had neither. They had landlines. By 2005, most people did have cell phones. Flip phones were the new innovation that year. They were smaller, slicker, cheaper, and better than the old cell phones, and you could even take pictures and send text messages on them. In 2007, the first iPhone came out, and by 2009, it was hard to imagine how we ever lived without one. The idea that we have the internet with us at all times is probably going to be what sets the tone for the rest of the 21st century in one way or another. The Internet of Things is what they're calling it for the moment. The 2000s, the aughts, must have been what the 1900s felt like to live through for people born in the 1800s. In the year 1900, people had heard of cars and maybe even seen a car, but hardly anybody actually had a car. By 1910, people either had cars themselves or were planning on getting one soon. Cars being parked against curbs all up and down the street was the new urban landscape. And the car is pretty much what shaped the rest of the century. As garages were built, roads were paved, highways were constructed, suburbs were created, drive-in theaters, drive-through restaurants, and so on. People would drive their air-conditioned cars on interstates, following the same trails that their grandparents had crossed in covered wagons. That was the 20th century. And that kind of rapid evolution is why people like Charles Duell found this largely forgotten decade to be such an exciting time. Not to mention something like Einstein's theory of relativity that would be published in 1905. But to see where modernity actually begins, we need to turn back the clock from 1900 to 1800 and look at the simple invention that made this new age, the industrial age, not only possible, but inevitable. It was the humble steam engine that kicked it all off. Throughout world history, waterways had always been the most efficient way to travel. 
A fully laden boat could glide across the water faster than a horse-drawn wagon train or camel caravan could trudge across the landscape. Because horses grew tired and sick and roads got slow and bumpy. As long as you respected the currents and the weather patterns, boats were a much more efficient way to go. Basically, they had much fewer moving parts than a wagon or a caravan did. And when the steam engine came along, it created boats that didn't have to depend on winds or currents or teams of rowers. Boats could now carry full loads of cargo upriver instead of just downriver. And they could penetrate into areas they couldn't go before. The steam engine also meant that manufacturing plants could be built anywhere and not have to be dependent on the energy of moving rivers like before. And the steam engine is what led to the railroad, which offered a chance for heavy barges of cargo to quote-unquote sail smoothly across the land, just like a ship across water. What made the railroad viable was not the invention of railroad tracks, but of the engine that could pull a train of loaded cars along the tracks. Similarly, what was innovative about the steam engine was not the steam, but the engine. Now, for a little Science 101. What is a steam engine exactly? Answer. It's an external combustion engine, which is to say it's an engine block that contains either turbines or pistons, plus a boiler that's filled with liquid. Heat is applied to the boiler, and as the liquid boils and is converted to steam, the steam expands into the turbines or pistons and creates mechanical motion. As the steam pushes its way up through the valves, it begins to cool, condenses back into liquid, and returns to the boiler where it is once more heated, and the cycle begins all over again. That's the science of how the steam engine works. There's not a whole lot to it, is there? Now, from Science 101 to history. The ancient Romans were considered a very advanced civilization, particularly where applied technology was concerned. In school, we get a loose understanding of post-Roman Empire history as falling into the Dark Ages, the Medieval Era, and the Renaissance. Which, as we learn, means rebirth, and specifically, a rebirth of the classical civilization that had collapsed with Rome. It's estimated that Western civilization didn't catch up to the levels of technology the Romans had attained until sometime in the 1400s. The first big post-Roman innovation of the modern West was the printing press in the 1440s. The next big advancement came with the Age of Exploration, which led to the discovery of, and colonization of, the New World. And of course, by then, Europeans had picked up the technology of gunpowder from the Chinese and weaponized it. These were all achievements that the Romans had not managed to accomplish, and they're largely what set the course for the three centuries that would follow as a new way of thinking, known as the Enlightenment, took hold.
The ancient Romans really were advanced builders and manufacturers, with superior workmanship. Their structures still stand, and their aqueducts and roads still function. The famous Roman Colosseum never actually fell apart. It was merely mined for building material by future regimes that treated it as a quarry and carted off big chunks of the structure for their own projects. And the other malady that has ravaged the still-standing Roman ruins is a modern one, car exhaust. Years of traffic jams with tailpipes spewing carbon monoxide have turned out to be the ultimate predator on these 2,000-year-old structures. The Romans pioneered some remarkable advances. Roman concrete, for example, could actually dry underwater, which was something that modern technology couldn't match until the late 1800s. I mention all of this because one of history's big riddles is why the Romans never invented a functioning steam engine, an external combustion engine. It seems like something that would totally be in their wheelhouse. But whatever the reason, their empire fell before they could explore this technology. And it would be another 1,200 years before someone else finally did. In the late 1600s, the applications of steam in an airtight container were being researched and developed by European scientists, which led first to the invention of the pressure cooker in 1680. In 1712, a basic steam engine was developed in Britain that would pump groundwater out of mines and looked a little bit like the rocking horse-style oil pumps you still see by the side of the road pumping oil today. But the big breakthrough happened in the 1760s and 70s, when a Scotsman named James Watt created a steam engine that used less coal and generated more energy than the pump model, and was capable of creating rotary motion, the kind that could power the moving parts of machinery, instead of just serving as a ground pump. The Watt steam engine, with a few modifications here and there, is what made the Industrial Revolution possible. The improved steam engine could also be used to generate electricity, a force whose powers were just beginning to be harnessed at the time. The steam engine is described as an external combustion engine because the energy used to generate the power comes from the heat applied to the outside of the engine. The next big advancement on that frontier would come later in the century with the internal combustion engine, in which the energy was created not by steam, but by a controlled series of rapid-fire explosions generated by sparks inside the cylinders of the engine itself. This is a much more efficient and powerful way of creating energy than external combustion, and is, of course, the technology behind the 20th century inventions. Automobiles, airplanes, rockets, and leaf blowers. The kind of miracle machines of the 20th century that put a man on the moon, and made it possible to fly faster than the speed of sound. But the 19th century was the bridge that got us over the technological gap, the fulcrum over which the Western world changed into something almost unrecognizable to the previous 4,000 years of recorded history. Using the United States as an example, in the year 1800, plantation owners like Thomas Jefferson were the prototypes of the man in full, agrarian men whose wealth was measured in crops and land holdings. The United States was an overwhelmingly agrarian nation in 1800. The world was an overwhelmingly agrarian place. Machines didn't really exist yet, and neither did practical electricity. 
horsepower was the only kind of power there was. So somebody who could breed horses on his plantation was on a relatively level playing field with somebody who manufactured wagons in the city. And on the topic of plantations, we're kind of dancing around the subject. But in regards to things not having changed much since biblical times, this country ran on slavery for the first 60 years of the 19th century. Of our first presidents, only two didn't own slaves. John Adams and his son John Quincy Adams. But by the close of the 1800s, cities ran on electric power, and there were skyscrapers and underground streetcars, stock tickers and incandescent light bulbs, and daily newspapers with bylines from across the globe. Jobs were in factories now, and factories never closed. Demand for labor was so high that even immigrants from the less desirable parts of Europe were now encouraged to come, and even children were put to work. And even on farms, people were freed up from nature. Unlike automobiles, farm equipment could actually be made with steam engines. So you had things like the cotton gin and tractors and the onset of the agricultural revolution more than half a century before you had automobiles. For the entirety of human history up to the onset of the 1800s, we lived within the bounds of nature and its circadian rhythms. When the sun went down, it got dark, and it stayed dark until the sun came up. Other than windmills and river mills, the only energy suitable for doing physical work came from a person or an animal. And nothing, not even information, could travel faster than a sailing ship or a team of horses. But by the end of the 19th century, life would be dominated by the whir of machinery instead of the rhythms of nature. Your ears would be full of the clanging of machines and the honking of horns. The skies would be discolored with the soot and ash of industrial smokestacks. Human noses would adjust to the new smells of burning coal and car exhaust. And your eyes would see trains operating at terrifyingly unnatural speeds of 35 miles an hour and up. All of this was brand new to the human experience, and culture began to change along with it meaning that the world was a vastly different place at the end of the 19th century than at the beginning. Well, Hopefully this little exercise in time travel has given you an appreciation of just how modernizing that old-fashioned sepia-toned 19th century actually was. And there's more. In the mid-19th century, the concept of evolution came to the forefront. This theory turned conventional wisdom on its head in a couple of ways. For starters, it wiped away creationism as the dominant paradigm. Evolution said, in so many words, that everything we'd been taught for the last 2,000 years is a folktale. The Bible went from being taken as literal truth to allegorical truth, substantially reducing the authority, both moral and physical, of the church in modern society. Of course, that had been going on since Martin Luther's time, but the theory of evolution took it to another level. Evolution didn't just dispute whether the world was literally created in six days, or whether Jonah actually lived inside the stomach of a fish, 
or whether Methuselah really lived to the age of 967. Evolution implied that the wonderful, terrifying, mysterious world around us in all its multitudes was created not by any single intelligent being, but by mutation. And that humans did not have a single ounce of the divine spark in them. That they, we, were primates who learned how to use sticks and stones as tools and weapons and took it from there. The other repercussion of this new theory was not just what it said about our creation myth, but what it told us about ourselves. Not only that we descended from apes instead of Adam and Eve, but that we're only here because we're somehow more fit to survive, and others aren't here because they were less fit to survive. Not based on the content of our souls and our fearfulness of God, but based on our agility, cunning, and the law of the jungle. If human destiny is not a matter of currying favor with God, but of the strong and adaptable surviving, while the weak and inadaptable are left to die off, just how far should our compassion for our fellow man extend in the new frontier of the industrial age? If the cruel reality of natural selection over centuries of warfare and conquest is what got us to where we are now, on the threshold of this scientific and technological revolution, then do we owe it to our destiny to go full speed ahead and allow those who are the fittest to survive in the new world and let those who are not fit go the way of the dinosaurs? Was that the message of evolution? There were other indicators as well. Take a look at a graph of world population totals. It remains basically flat and stable during the Bronze and Iron Ages. During the Roman Empire, it rises slowly at a more or less stable growth rate, going from perhaps 150 million at the time of Caesar to 450 million at the time of Columbus. Then it starts to rise a little faster, until around 1800, when the graph shoots straight up and goes right off the charts. With science and technology, people had essentially defeated the checks and balances of nature. The agricultural revolution meant that we could feed all these people. And the industrial revolution meant that there would be work for them as well. Improvements in medicine and sanitation meant that even more babies survived childbirth and made it through to adulthood. And these grown children weren't needed on farms anymore because machines did most of the labor. So they came to the cities and filled the streets looking for work. As long as productivity kept up with the increased demand that all these extra souls created, that was fine. But when the inevitable crisis arose that would throw a wrench in the machinery, what would happen to all those extra people who couldn't naturally be supported by the land? If people starved in the street, wouldn't that just be Malthusian science playing out? doing what nature intended and evolution demanded? Beforehand, disasters and plagues would be chalked up to God's will, and the answer was usually to pray louder. But in the century of Charles Darwin and Charles Dickens, it seemed that other forces were in play. Dickens became the go-to author of the time because his prose confronted these issues head on. 
Nowadays, we tend to romanticize 19th century Britain. We play up the notion of London fog being something that blows in off the sea and bathes the city in ocean mist. And we play down the notion that the fog was actually the sky-darkening soot belched out by a skyline of brick smokestacks. It's probably no coincidence that Marxism, with its binary division of the world into the bourgeoisie and the proletariat, and its Armageddon-like overtones of the struggle ahead, developed just as the factory was coming to dominate the human experience. The perception of time itself changed in the 19th century. Before 1800, clocks were around, but not very useful. They usually didn't even have a minute hand, let alone a second hand. Minutes and seconds didn't really exist yet in people's consciousness because minutes and seconds didn't really matter. Before telegraphs and trains, you really didn't need to worry about what time it was anywhere else but where you happened to be. Time was purely a local phenomenon, and different towns would set their clocks by different standards, usually so that midday fell around 12 noon, what did it matter if your clock was synchronized with towns in other regions? The only way to have long-distance communications in real time was to shout. But with telegraphs, you didn't have to shout. You could suddenly have real-time conversations with people hundreds of miles away. So you did have a reason to be aware of what time it was somewhere else. This was especially important for the railroads. As trains began to crisscross the country at great speed and share the tracks with other trains coming and going from other directions, they needed timetables that would give precise arrivals and departures for every place the train served. And if you're going to get everybody using a standard time, you're going to have to create standardized time zones. Otherwise, if the sun rose at 6.30 a.m. in New York, it would rise at 3.30 a.m. in California. And if the sun set at 5 p.m. in New York, it would set at 2 p.m. in California. Never mind what time it would be in London or Hong Kong. It made a lot more sense to divide the world into time zones instead of fighting over whose kids would start school at 9 a.m. and whose kids would start school at 9 p.m. Every community would be required to set its clocks according to the time zone it was placed into. You might call this an early example of the federal bureaucracy imposing itself upon the rights of the individual. In 1800, time was determined by local communities and their relationship with the sun. In 1900, it was determined by the government. In 1800, the sun dictated when the workday started and when it stopped, as it had since the beginning of time. In 1900, electricity, light bulbs, and machinery meant work could be and would be done around the clock. In 1895, H.G. Wells 
came out with a novella called The Time Machine. And with that title, he coined a phrase that we've all been familiar with ever since, Time Machine. Wells's book, The Time Machine, is considered an establishing milestone of the science fiction genre. Wells's general body of work and the genre he helped create would take the actual scientific breakthroughs that were being reported all the time in the 1890s and extend them a little bit deeper into the realms of speculation, realms that were believable if written well enough. So much was happening scientifically at this time that it was often hard to know where science fiction ended and scientific dissertation began. In 1905, a 26-year-old European patent clerk named Albert Einstein published four articles in a physics journal and kicked off the whole era of modern physics. One subject Einstein addressed was time, which he saw as something other than linear and absolute, as it had always been perceived up until that moment. To Einstein, time was relative. It could be sped up, slowed down, flattened, crunched together, and spun in different directions. Between Einstein and H.G. Wells, it kind of seemed like the leading figures of hard science and popular fiction at the turn of the century were working from the same script. With all the scientific consideration of time travel that people like H.G. Wells brought to his stories, it was a time travel piece by a writer at the other end of the literary pantheon that gives insight into how the popular culture of the time related to the age of scientific breakthrough they were living in. Unlike H.G. Wells, Mark Twain's milieu was capturing the vernacular and wit of the savvy American frontiersmen, people who probably didn't go to college or read the scientific journals. In 1889, six years before Wells' time machine, Twain published a book called A Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court, which is technically a time travel novel, though it doesn't concern itself at all with the physics of time travel. Instead, Twain's protagonist receives a blow to the head in his 1880s Connecticut workshop and somehow wakes up in King Arthur's court in 6th century England. The story isn't about time travel per se. It's about how a simple Yankee tradesman, using the technological know-how of the 1800s, is able to outsmart Merlin the Magician, plus assorted malevolent priests, and basically take over all of England. The message of the story is that compared to people from previous centuries, the people of the 19th century possess knowledge that makes them like a combination of sorcerers and supermen in comparison to their brethren from earlier centuries. H.G. Wells and Laura Ingalls were born just four months apart in the 1860s. But, Laura Ingalls wrote about her world of sod houses and untamed prairies, while H.G. Wells wrote about his world, which was the brave new world being built in cities like London, New York, and Paris at the same time Ma and Pa Ingalls were homesteading the lands of western Minnesota. 
You could say that Laura Ingalls and H.G. Wells were two sides of the same 19th century coin. And it is another contemporary of theirs, born three years before Wells, and also in the publishing business, named William Randolph Hearst, who will be a person of interest on our next episode of The TV Room, when we talk about the rise and fall of 20th century journalism. See you then. The TV Room is a production of Sorif TV. Find us online at sorif.tv. That's S as in steamship, O-R-E, F as in freight train. There, you'll find links to all podcast episodes, along with dozens of articles about these topics and more.